All right, as we start off in 2017, I just was praying about some things. And my, to be honest with you, as my role as, as husband and father in our family, I've been challenging our family as well to have a biblical understanding and perspective when it comes to 2017. We're at a really interesting time in the life of our family because of the fact of our, the age of our kids. And we're about to possibly move into that empty nest. As you know, they never fully leave. But at the same time, we're, we're, we're actually going to have four graduations this year. Um, we only have three kids. <laughs> One of them is graduating from high school, and then he's also getting his AA degree from uh, what used to be BCC at the same time. And then we have another one who's graduating from Florida State University, and then another one who's graduating from UCF with her graduate degree, all happening this year. Yet at the same time, in the midst of all this that's going on, we have a house full of what's next. Because, as you know, just because you get your degree doesn't mean that you're done. And they're looking for, of course, husbands and jobs and what does God have in store? And of course, for my wife and I, life is changing as our role with our kids is, is changing. And so personally, and I just want to challenge you to do this on your own. We've been as a family really meditating on Psalm 37. We're not going to turn there tonight, but Psalm 37 really deals the whole chapter with not fretting because of the evildoers and having a biblical understanding of what is to come and how to look at the world and what goes on around us. And then at the same time, through that, two things came out. One that I had prepared to share with you, and one actually somebody texted to me this afternoon and said, hey, you need to share this at your Bible study. And they had probably had no idea that I was actually going to do it. Because half the time when people send me stuff... It goes in the trash, especially if you email me something that says you now have to pass it on to 10 people or you don't love Jesus. Let me, let me just tell you, that I, I chuck that stuff. I'll tell you now. So don't waste your time sending me that stuff or, you know, an angel's going to get you and all this stuff. But the main thing I'm going to ask you as we get ready for 2017 is this. How many of you know exactly what's going to happen this year? None of us. None of us do. And let me ask you another question. How many of you can honestly tell me you'll be excited about everything that God does in this coming year? We've got to be honest. We, we struggle with that sometimes. And this life of trust and faith and obedience is hard. One of the things that was sent to me today, I want to read to you. And it's actually, it started to become something that just tonight my wife and I started talking about in our family. It says, one Sunday morning at a small southern church, the new pastor called on one of his older deacons to lead in the opening prayer. The deacon stood up, bowed his head, and said, Lord, I hate buttermilk. The pastor opened one eye and wondered where this was going. The deacon continued, Lord, I hate lard. Now the pastor was totally perplexed. The deacon continued, Lord, I ain't too crazy about plain flour. But after you mix them all together and break, bake them in a hot oven, I just love biscuits. <laughs> Lord, help us to realize when life gets hard, when things come up that we don't like, whenever we don't understand what you're doing, that we need to wait and see what you're making. After you get through mixing and baking, it'll probably be something even better than biscuits. Amen. Now, oh, isn't that cool? My wife and I talked about this on the way over here tonight as I was talking about I'm going to share this, and I'd already read it to her earlier. I think a fun thing that we're going to start doing in our family is 
Whenever something happens, and it's going to, that you don't like and you don't understand, but you want to trust God in it, our way of reacting to it is going to be, in our family, we're going to start saying, I hate buttermilk. <laughs> and that's a reminder of the fact of, you know what, I don't like buttermilk either, and I don't like lard by itself, and plain flour doesn't get me excited, but you know what, when you wait and you allow the master to put it together, we love biscuits. And there's going to be a lot of buttermilk that's going to come by itself in your life this year. Let the master put it all together. He has a purpose, and he has a plan. And that reminded me of a poem that I've known about for about five, six years now, maybe a little bit more. It's called God Knows by a lady named Minnie Louise Haskins. I'm not going to read to you the whole poem. It's, it's really awesome. Write it down. Go find it. It's on the, on the Internet, really easy to find. God Knows by Minnie Louise Haskins. This is how it starts. I'm just going to read you a portion of it. And I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, Give me a light that I may tread safely into the unknown. And he replied, Go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. That shall be to you better than light and safer than a known way. So I went forth and finding the hand of God trod gladly into the night. And he led me towards the hills and the breaking of day in the lone east. So heart be still. What need our little life, our human life to know if God hath comprehension? In all the dizzy strife of things both high and low, God hideth his intention. God knows. His will is best. The stretch of years which wind ahead so dim to our imperfect vision are clear to God. Our fears are premature. In him, all time hath full provision. There's more to it, but I think you get the idea. And that whole idea of heading out into the darkness and putting your hand in the hand of God, and that'll be better than a light and better than a known way. And so I just want to challenge you as we head into 2017. My prayer is that all of us would learn even more how to walk into the darkness trusting the Lord. And we're all going to run into times when we have to say, I hate buttermilk. But in time, we'll understand what he's putting together. All right? That was free. Ezekiel 9. Now you're going to pay for this. All right. Ezekiel 9, verses 1 through 11. Ezekiel 9, verses 1 through 11. Then he cried in my ears with a loud voice, saying, Bring near the executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. And behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his weapon for slaughter in his hand. And with them was a man clothed in linen, with a writing case at his waist. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed in linen, who had the writing case at his waist. And the Lord said to him, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan all over all the abominations that are committed in it. And to the others, he said, in my hearing, pass through the city after him and strike. Your eye shall not spare and you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the house. Then he said to them, defile the house and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. So they went out and struck in the city 
And while they were striking, I was left alone. I fell upon my face and cried, Ah, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in the outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? Then he said to me, The guilt of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of blood and the city is full of injustice. For they say, The Lord has forsaken the land and the Lord does not see. As for me, my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will bring their deeds upon their heads. And behold, the man clothed in linen with the writing case at his waist brought back word, saying, I have done as you commanded me. Now, as we break down chapter 9 tonight, I want to remind you that we are in the middle of Ezekiel's vision that began in chapter 8, and it concludes in, at the end of chapter 11. So all of chapter 8, 9, 10, and 11 is this one vision that Ezekiel had while he was sitting in his house. And we see here in chapter 9, verse 1, it says, Then he cried in my ears with a loud voice. Who's the he that cries in Ezekiel's ears? It's God. It's God. Go back to chapter 8 and take a look at verses 1 through 3. It says, In the sixth year, in the sixth month, and the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house, remember, he's in a house in Babylon in captivity, with the elders of Judah sitting before me, the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. And then I looked, and behold, a form that had the appearance of a man below what appeared to be his waist was fire, and above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming metal. He put out the form of a hand and took me by, the, by my head, and the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem. So it was God showed up, grabbed him by the head, and took him off on a journey, kind of like we talked about last time we were together, the whole Christmas carol story where these spirits, if you will, would take the individual on a journey and they would actually see what was going on in those, those ways. Uh, go, go to verse 7. And he brought me, again, God still, brought me to the entrance of the court. All right, look at verse 14 of chapter 8. And then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord. So in chapter 9, when it says, and he cried in my ears, this is God who yells in the ears of Ezekiel. But what does he yell? Bring the executioners. I'll tell you, I don't know about, to even hear God speak in the first place would probably scare most of us to death, right? If we heard him audibly. Hopefully you know when God's speaking and leading and being, being led of the Spirit, if you will, when he speaks through his word and he speaks to you in prayer. But to hear an audible voice and then to have the voice of God say, bring the executioners. Six angels appear in the temple complex at the bronze altar with weapons of slaughter in their hands. Now, I don't want you to miss this. Six angels show up in the temple complex where? Near the bronze altar. This is the altar that they offer the sacrifices on right before the holy place and then the holy of holies. Does anybody remember what we just saw happening at the bronze altar and what is happening at that time at the bronze altar? Abominations. If you, if you don't remember, go back real quick to Ezekiel chapter 8 and look at verse 16. And he brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord, and behold, at the entrance of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, that's the bronze altar, were about 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, worshiping the sun toward the east. So Ezekiel has been brought in this vision to Jerusalem, and he sees what's going on in the temple. We dealt with that in our last study. And these 25 men are there at the bronze altar, worshiping the sun with their back to the altar, and their back to the temple. And who is standing right there ready to kill them? The angels of God. Six angels who have been set apart for this role, and they had no idea 
but an angel was right there waiting for the orders to slaughter them. And all of a sudden, my brain went back to a story from our childhood. Go with me back to Numbers chapter 22. Numbers chapter 22, we're going to start in verse 22. Remember the story of Balaam? And how Balaam had been told by God not to curse, but Balak had hired him to come and curse Israel. In verse 22, God's anger was kindled because he went. Balaam went. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way and as his adversary. Now he was riding on the donkey and his two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. Smart donkey. And the Balaam struck the donkey to turn her into the road. And then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn, either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. And Balaam's anger was kindled, and he struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. And she said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, because you have made a fool of me, I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. And the donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, no. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And he bowed down and fell on his face. He should have kissed the donkey. <laughs> and the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times. If she had not turned aside for me, surely just now I would have killed you and let her live. Then Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now, therefore, if it's evil in your sight, I'll turn back. And the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but speak only the word that I tell you. So Balaam went on with the princes of Balak. What was going on is there's a spiritual realm, folks. You've got to hopefully remember this. I think a lot of times we lose sight of the fact that we're living in a spiritual realm. The physical is what we all think is the real world. And, and I've heard too many people say, Well, I live in the real world. You know, Preacher Jim, you believe all that Bible stuff, but I live in the real world. I said, No, you don't. You live in the made world. The real world existed prior to what you see and taste and touch. If you know anything about science, you know that there is a light spectrum and our eyes are only able to see a small portion. How many of you can see with your eyes ultraviolet light? Does it mean it's not there? Hopefully you understand that there's radio waves and signals passing through these walls all the time. How in the world can these things just read? There's stuff going that we can't see, feel, taste, or touch. And just as real as ultraviolet light and just as real as these signals and radio waves that go through the walls, there is a spiritual realm right here. But just because we can't see, taste, or touch it doesn't mean it's not real. And if you know from the Bible, we see lots of times that God allows the humans, their eyes, to be able to see that realm. When Elisha prayed, Lord, open the eyes of my servant. And he saw the angels and the chariots of fire all around the city. And at the, we don't even know it, but there's a lot going on in the spiritual realm. And I want you to hear me. That is where God is most concerned. 
If you remember back from our study in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, the Bible says that God's intent that it was now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known to the spiritual authorities in the heavenly realms. God's doing something right now in this church age to reveal His glory, Ephesians 3.10, if you don't believe me. Ephesians 3.10 says that He's using the church to display His glory to the spiritual authorities in the heavenly realms, the angels and the demons. We've been created for a time lower than the angels. One day, for those of us who will let him do his work and use us for his purposes, even though we don't like buttermilk and we don't understand what he's doing, for those of us who are willing to let him do what he wants for his glory, even though it makes no sense and we don't like it, but if we trust him, the Bible says one day we're going to rule over those angels for eternity. There's something that's going on in the spiritual realm that I think it would help us to realize, and we're going to do a little study tonight about the fact that these men were standing there sinning gravely, and there were angels right there ready to kill them. What was the only thing keeping them from being killed at that moment? God's permission. I want to talk to you about that a little bit tonight, because I want us to understand the seriousness of what's going on. There's somebody else with those angels, executioners, those six men who have been called by God to come with their weapons of slaughter. Who else is standing there? How's he described anyway? A man clothed in linen with a writing case at his waist. Now, some people think that this is a pre-incarnate Christ. In other words, Jesus before he took on flesh. Hopefully you understand Jesus has always existed. He's God. He's always been. But before he took on flesh, some people think that this is him. I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. I'm not going to waste my time arguing over whether or not it's Jesus. Because to be honest with you, I don't think you can prove it. But here's the deal. Whoever it is, it's a person of power and authority. The, the linen, the clothed in linen is a picture of that. But this individual was told, before the executioners go and kill people, I want you to go and mark the foreheads of everyone in the city who's grieved over what's going on in the city like I am. And the angel goes through and marks the heads of all these people. And again, this is why when I taught the book of Revelation, I kept trying to stress to you, if you had read the Old Testament, the book of Revelation would have never seemed confusing or scary because over three quarters of the book of Revelation is just a compilation of what the Old Testament's been preparing us for. And all the way through the scriptures, you'll see this spiritual realm work of God setting apart and marking those who are His, who trust Him, and those who are set for destruction. We're not going to turn there, but you can write it down and look at it later on. You remember Exodus chapter 12 with the nation of Israel and the institution of the Passover and how God had prepared things and set things up to the point that he knew Pharaoh would say no and he brought his last plague and he said, I'm going to kill the firstborn of everyone, man and beast. But the Jews were set apart to be spared, but they had to by faith take that spotless lamb, welcome it into their house on the 10th day of the month and the 14th at twilight, they were to kill it. And they were to take the blood and what? Put it on the doorposts of the house. When the death angel passed through, that mark told the death angel, don't kill the firstborn in this place. Again, there was the marking of those who were to be spared when the judgment came. Go to Revelation chapter 7. We know at the end of the church age is going to come the tribulation period. And the beginning of the tribulation period, though, before God brings His wrath on the earth, and by the way, the whole tribulation period, all seven years of the wrath of God. Some people try to say the wrath is in the second half, but 
The wrath of God, if you look at the scriptures, is clearly from the beginning. And in chapter 7, listen to verses 1 through 8. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. And if you remember from our study of Revelation, the holding back the wind doesn't mean that there was no breeze. What it meant was there was no judgment. The four winds all the way through, as you go back to Daniel and other places, all talk about the judgment of God. But these angels are holding back the judgment of God. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Sound familiar? And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then it lists 12,000 from Judah, 12,000 from Reuben, and so on. So here we see before the judgment of God came during the tribulation period, which, by the way, if you understand, the first seals open and the Antichrist comes out and declares himself to be the, the Messiah. Of course, he's not. He's the Antichrist. Then the next seal is half opened up right away. And if you remember, peace is removed from the earth and men are able to slay each other. And then the next seal is opened and all of a sudden there's famine that breaks out across the globe. And then there's death after that in the next seal. You remember what Jesus said in Revelation chapter 1? He said, Behold, I... These things must quickly take place. That word soon has got us all freaked out because, well, it's been 2,000 years. It can't be soon. No, the word soon, or what we have in English translated soon, is actually the Greek word where we get our word tachometer. And a tachometer doesn't measure time. A tachometer just measures how fastly something's happening. These things in the book of Revelation are going to quickly happen. When they do, boom, 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 it all starts to happen. And during the tribulation period, there are these angels who have been given permission to harm the earth and the sea and the trees and everything, and even humans, as you're going to see in time. But they're not allowed to do that during the tribulation period until what? The 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from each tribe, are sealed and protected by God as they go out as evangelists into the world during that time period, they are sealed and protected before all this judgment is allowed to take place. Go to Revelation chapter 9. Look at verses 1 through 12. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. And they were told not to harm the grass or the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who don't have the seal of God on their forehead. And then if you know the rest of this, they were able to sting people, and they were tortured for five months, but they wouldn't die. They wished they could die, but they weren't allowed to die. In chapter 9, look at verse 13. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. I don't know if you caught this yet or not, but in Ezekiel we see what we would call angels stepping forward to do the killing. During the tribulation period, God uses demons. In chapter 9, where do these demons come that torture everybody? They come from the bottomless pit, the abyss, the place of torment for those angels who left their position. 
we see here these four angels who are bound at the great... If they're good angels, they don't need to be in chains, folks. Oh, by the way, did anybody catch the fact that that day has already been set? There's nothing holding it back but God's timetable. It's all on schedule. And at that point, they're going to be released to kill a third of mankind. Oh, they won't be able to kill the ones who have the mark. Yes? Verse 15. Mm-hmm. Of chapter 9. Yes. Mm-hmm. It tells you that God has got everything planned right to a T. He sure does. It's by the hour. Yep. Today. I, I, I'm so glad you brought that out, Fred. He's got everything. I don't know if you didn't hear Fred. He's got, God's got everything planned out to the hour, the minute, the day. Do you understand that when Jesus rode through Jerusalem, I'm sorry, walked through Jerusalem while they were dragging him as he carried his cross, everything was right on schedule? Even his falling to the ground, and he was still on the cross at the exact hour. He was killed at the same moment that the Passover lambs were being killed. When everything looked out of control, everything was in orchestrated to the minute. Folks, again, as we head into the new year, it would do us well to be reminded he's got it all under control. The question is, are you going to trust him? Or are you going to take it into your own hands because you don't think God's got it? Look at Malachi chapter 3. Some of you might not have known your Bible had the book of Malachi. It's the very last one in the Old Testament there. Malachi chapter 3. There's a lot of really cool stuff, but I want you to look at verse 16 through 18. Malachi chapter 3. Look at verses 16 through 18. It says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And the book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and God took their names down. Folks, God knows who are his. He's marked us, and we're going to get to that in just a little bit. But I want you to be reminded when it looks like everything's out of control and we sometimes feel like saying, God, where are you? God, do you know? He knows. He knows. And he's keeping track. It's interesting. There's a story in the book of Acts where these guys try to cast out demons when they don't know Jesus personally, who has the only authority to remove a demon. And they said, we cast you out in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. If you know the story, it's a pretty amazing one. The demon said, we know who Jesus is. And we've heard of Paul. Who are you? And they beat them to, almost to death, and they ran out of that place naked and bleeding. How come the demons weren't afraid of them? Because they weren't his. They, of course, knew who Jesus was. They knew who Paul was. Remember when Job, in the book of Job, we see in chapters 1 and chapters 2, that when the angels appear before God, and Satan has to come with them, because he's an angel that was created as well, even though he lost his position. And God says, what you been up to? And of course, he says, been going to and fro throughout the earth. And if you remember from 2 Peter, he goes to and fro throughout the earth looking for someone to devour. And God says, how about Job? And what does, what does Satan say? You've got this head to protect. I can't. 
I want to talk to you tonight about the fact that I don't think many of us really understand how protected from the evil one and his minions we are now, now that we're in Christ. I want this to be burned into your brains. That if you are in Christ and Christ is in you, there's no better seal. I mean, there's one thing to have a mark on your forehead. It's another thing to have Jesus himself living in you. And that's what the demons see. That's, and and go, go, to, go to Ephesians chapter 1. I want you to look at verses 13 and 14. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. Paul says, In him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. See, these people were sealed. That seal of God was put on their foreheads. You got Jesus himself inside of you now. You've been sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. Folks, do you think a Satan or anybody can just do anything they want to you? You got to understand way back at the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus taught us the model or the template for prayer, who does he teach us in Matthew chapter 6 to pray to? Our Father who art in heaven. And while we're praying to our Father who art in heaven, he then teaches us to say this, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Hang on for a second. Doesn't James chapter 1 verse 13 say that God tempts no one? Nor can he be tempted. So if God doesn't tempt anyone, why does he teach us to pray, Father, don't lead me into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 says this, There is no temptation that has seized you, but first is common to man. And God will not allow you to be tempted with more than you're able to bear. And with the temptation, he'll provide a way to escape it. What we need to understand is, is God controls whether or not we are even to be tempted. A lot of times we think, well, the devil made me do it. Not really. We're under attack all the time, the Bible says, by this world and its mindset and its system. Our flesh is still under the curse. It's still falling apart, which shows it hasn't been redeemed yet. And it still has the curse of sin in it. And Satan, yes, is out there, but, and his minions are out there. But folks, listen closely. If Jesus is in you, they can't even touch you or talk to you without your father's permission. They're not allowed to touch you. Oh, but sometimes, as we see in the life of Job, he says yes. What was God's purpose in saying yes to Satan to allow Satan to do stuff in Job's life? It was a refining and to bring glory as we continue to say, I don't like buttermilk, but I, but I trust. As Job said, it came to the point where he said, even though he slay me, yet will I trust him. But please, I don't want you running around afraid of Satan. He can't do anything without your father's permission. And if your father has allowed something, he has a purpose. And it's right. It might not make sense to you at this time. You might have been saying, why? I don't understand it. I can't see anything good that would come out of this. You're not God. 
And that's why for those of us who are in Christ, we need to be people who live our lives with a worldview or an understanding that is based on the word of God and the truth of God and his spirit within us. So that even though the world says, well, I live in the real world, we live in the real, real world, which is the spiritual realm where God dwells. And we don't have to live by sight, but we live by faith in who he is and what he said. And thank God we've been marked so that when those destroying angels, whether angels or demons, are allowed to do their work, they won't kill us. Oh, don't misunderstand. When I say won't kill us, it means bring God's judgment on us for eternal damnation. Does God allow even his believers to be killed in this life? We could tell you story upon story in the Bible, Stephen being one of the first. But by the way, was that a bad day for Stephen? Or was that probably one of the best days Stephen ever had? Because while he was being stoned, he just started saying, hey, this is pretty cool. He can see the Father. And he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, welcoming him. He passed from what we call the real world to the real world. Folks, if you're in Christ, pray that God develop in you. Go to Psalm 37 like I told you before. Spend some time letting that whole chapter be resonating in your heart so that truth of that whole chapter teaches you how to live this year in faith. Because I too can't tell you what's going to happen. But I can promise you most of it probably won't be comfortable. But he'll be there. and He'll walk you through it. And he's got you. And he's good. And you've been marked with the best seal. We're still in a battle even though we've been sealed by God. Because like I told you, he taught us to say, lead us not into temptation. But in other words, Father, you control whether or not that stuff's going to happen. And my request is, please don't do it. But if you do, deliver me from the evil one. By the way, was Jesus ever tempted? The Bible says he was tempted in every way, wasn't he? Oh, by the way, if you go back to Matthew chapter 4, you'll remember right after his baptism, when the Spirit of God spoke in an audible voice and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. What happened right after that? He was led of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted and tested. So if that's going to happen to Jesus, don't you think he's going to walk you through some stuff this year that's going to be uncomfortable? Make you ask a few questions yourself? He's got a purpose. You may not like buttermilk, and you may not like lard, and you might not like flour by itself. But if you let him do his work, he's mixing it right now. One day you're going to say, you know what? So glad that happened. So glad that happened. By the way, I want to remind you as we're in this spiritual battle, I don't want anybody in here trying to cast out demons or trying to rebuke Satan yourself. That's a bad teaching that's out there in Christianity today. Where someone just say, Satan, I rebuke you. Well, be careful. Because the book of Hebrews tells us that even though everything is under the feet of Jesus, at present we don't see everything subject to Jesus. Who's still the ruler of this world for a season? Satan is. And if Jesus doesn't at all times 
totally, but allows him, doesn't control him, but allows him to do his stuff, who are you to think that you can just rebuke him? I want to teach you what the Bible really teaches about this. Go to 1 John chapter 4. Who'd ever thought that in Ezekiel chapter 9 we'd have such a fun study on the spiritual realm? 1 John chapter 4. Look at verse 4. 1 John 4, 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Are you greater than he who is in the world? No. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. In Ephesians 6, if you were to go back and take a look at Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 18, but because of time I need to keep moving. In Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 18, it talks about how we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual authorities in the heavenly places, forces of evil in the heavenly places. And we're to put on the, we're to put on the armor of God. And all those parts of the armor of God taking care of us, His Word, His truth, all these things. But I want to take you to James chapter 4. And I want you to learn to read the whole verse when you memorize it. Because if I were to ask most people to quote this verse, many of you would leave half of it off because you've memorized it only half. You see, most of us, if I were to start the, ver the James chapter 4 for you, James chapter 4, verse 7, and I were to start it and say, resist the devil, and what? The problem is we've all learned to quote it, but that's not what the verse says. Look at the verse. Verse 7 says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he'll flee you. Folks, if you resist the devil on your own, you'll end up like Eve. Eve had a little bit of truth, didn't she? I mean, she knew what God had said, either from God himself or from her husband passing it on to her. And she tried to resist him herself, and she even tried to speak truth, and he won. He tripped her up. He twisted things. I'm going to put it this way. It's a pun. I love it. She bit. She bit. And let me just tell you right now, those of you who think you're strong, even though Jesus is in you, if you don't know how to let the Spirit of God fight the battle, put on the armor of God and submit yourself to God and rest back in God and you're resisting the devil through sorry, Jesus being within you, you're going to lose when you try to fight temptation on your own. You can't rebuke Satan. But you can back up into the big robe of the one who is greater. And when he sees him, he ain't sticking around. What happened when Jesus walked up to this man who had a legion of demons? I mean, a lot of demons. What did the demons say when they saw Jesus walk up? They said, we know who you are. Have you come to send us to the abyss before the appointed time? Please don't send us there now. They were afraid of Jesus. Kids would run up and jump in his lap. What was there to be afraid of? Oh, the demons know who he was. They knew who he was. They understood in the same way. Live your life this year understanding nothing. You're in Christ, and that's the big key. If you're in Christ, then Christ is in you. I didn't ask if you prayed a prayer or whether you were baptized. If you're in Christ or Christ, and Christ is in you, 
Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And that same Jesus who lived in this human body just like yours and mine was tempted in ways you couldn't even imagine, yet lived without sin and had victory over the flesh will give you victory over your mortal bodies as well. But he has to be the one who does it. And that's why daily we have to lay our flesh on the altar and say, Lord, you take control. That's why daily we have to renew our minds and thank God daily his mercies are new every morning. But folks, it's time that Christians understood who we really are in Christ. And we live with less fear. We stop thinking that God forgot us or that God doesn't know. The Bible's shown us he's taking names. He's marking. I love how Adrian Rogers points out in the book of Revelation. We see in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus' letters to the churches. He says, I'm going to give you a new name. Yet when Satan comes on the scene, the Antichrist gives everybody a number. Adrian Rogers said years ago, Jesus will give you a name. Satan's just going to give you a number. I could keep going, but we've got to get some more done here tonight. Go back to Ezekiel. I think that's the book we're studying. <laughs> chapter 9. You may not have noticed it, but in Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 3, the Holy Spirit begins to leave the temple. I don't know how many people caught that. And if you didn't, it's okay. I want to show you. Chapter 9, verse 3, the Holy Spirit begins to leave the temple. Look at what it says in verse 3. It says, Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. Remember, when the Spirit of God, I'm going to show you real quickly when it happened. When the Spirit of God came to indwell the tabernacle, I'm sorry, the temple when Solomon had built it, and his glory filled the house, it came to rest on the cherubs, which is on the, the Ark of the Covenant. You remember it had two cherubs on each end? And they had their wings outstretched, and the glory of God would sit there. At this point, the glory of God moves from above the ark to the threshold of the temple. So let's take a look at because there's something here that's pretty cool. Go to 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8. Look at verses 1 through 11. Said, then Solomon and assembled the elders of, the, of Israel and all the heads of the tribes and the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel before King Solomon in Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled to King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came and the priests took up the ark and they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tent of meeting, and the whole, all the holy vessels that were in the tent, the priests and the Levites brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were, were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they couldn't be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim. Remember, there were, remember from our study in the early part of Ezekiel, in that Holy of Holies were these two huge cherubim that stood from wall to wall and their wings stretched out this way and touched in the middle. And they put the ark underneath those two big cherubim. And then it says in verse 8, and the poles, not, let me back up, verse 7, for the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark so that the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from the outside. And they are there to this day. 
There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord had made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. When the ark of the covenant had been brought to the temple that Solomon had built, and they brought it from where it was in the tabernacle to the temple, it was such a glorious time, and they were worshiping God and sacrificing sheep and oxen just as they went all along the way. And they brought it, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Then, as you know from our story and what we've been seeing in our study of Ezekiel, over time, God lost his preeminence. They started worshiping all these other, quote-unquote, gods, small g, that really aren't gods. But because of Israel's idolatry, God's spirit had to leave. Go back to Ezekiel chapter 8. Look at verses 5 and 6. Ezekiel chapter 8, verses 5 and 6. And God said to me, Son of man, lift up your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted up my eyes toward the north, and behold, north of the altar gate in the entrance was this image of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they're doing, the great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here, to drive me far from my sanctuary? In chapter 9, Verse 3, we see that the Spirit of God, the glory of God that was there under the big cherubim and above the wings of the cherubim on the ark moved from there to the threshold. Go to chapter 10 and look at verses 4 and 5. And the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house, and the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. God's glory now moved not only from the threshold, the glory then moved to the eastern gate of the temple complex. Go over to chapter uh, 10, look at verses 18 and 19. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. By the way, this, these cherubim aren't the ones in the temple anymore. We'll get there when we get to chapter 10. We'll come to that next part in the study. But remember, as he gets to the threshold, the cherubim that he had seen, remember Ezekiel saw the cherubim in chapter 1 at the beginning in his first vision, and they had the whirling wheels and wherever they went, and the Spirit of God was above it, these cherubim show up at the threshold of the temple, and the glory of God moves to above those cherubim, the real cherubim, not just the gold ones that were images of it. Glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim, and the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. So we see now that the glory of God moves from the cherubim over the ark to the threshold. The real life cherubim show up. He gets on top of them and they go to the eastern gate. And then they leave through the eastern gate. The glory of God leaves through the eastern gate to the Mount of Olives east of the city. Go to chapter 11. Look at verses 22 through 23. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. So the glory of God leaves the Holy of Holies, goes to the threshold of the temple, gets on the cherubim, goes out the eastern gate, and goes to the Mount of Olives east of the city. Now, some of you may not grasp this yet, but I'm going to show you that the book of Ezekiel is going to show us. And I'm going to look at it tonight just a little bit, and we'll get into it in more detail when we get to that chapter but this is the exact same route in reverse that the glory of God is going to take when he comes back and sets up his kingdom on the earth. But he'll enter the millennial temple. 
you're going to follow the exact same route. And I'm take a little time tonight to teach on it briefly and clear up some, there's some misteaching about this that is very prevalent in Christendom today because of some things that have happened over the years with the Eastern Gate of the city of Jerusalem. And a lot of people get really excited about all that, but at the same time, they don't let the scripture speak. They let their enthusiasm speak. So I want to just take some time to show you. Go to Ezekiel chapter 43. As you, if you probably know, as you're turning to Ezekiel 43, this isn't the last temple, the one that the Spirit of God is leaving here in Ezekiel's day. Zerubbabel, they rebuilt the temple. It's called Zerubbabel's temple. But the Spirit of God never came to indwell Zerubbabel's temple. And even as you know, Herod then came and, came and enlarged it. And that was the temple during the day that Jesus walked on the earth. But the Spirit of God didn't indwell that temple. But Ezekiel chapter 43 shows us that the glory of the Lord is going to come back to the temple that's going to be rebuilt. It's going to be the temple during the millennial kingdom. Now, some people say, Jim, is this the temple that's going to be the temple that the Antichrist steps into? Don't know. I lean toward possibly not because he's going to desecrate that one. But at the same time, if it is, it's going to have been cleansed. And maybe that's the whole reason for those extra days in the Daniel chapter 12. Because we see that there's 1,260 days from the midpoint of the tribulation until the end. But then at the same time, Daniel tells us in chapter 12 at the very end that there's 75 more days there. And what is the purpose of that? Maybe that's the cleansing of the temple so that Jesus can come back and live in it. I don't know. And buddy, anybody tells you they do, they're lying to you. They don't know. But at the same time... Look at Ezekiel 43 and you'll see that the glory of God is going to come back to an actual temple that's going to be in Jerusalem. And if you look at the dimensions, once we get to the, this section of Ezekiel, you see the dimensions are totally different from any other temple that's ever been built. But in chapter 43, look at verses 1 through 3. He says, Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east, that's the eastern gate, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and just like the vision that I had seen by the Kebar Canal, and I fell on my face. As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. While the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple, and he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. This is when Jesus comes back to set up his kingdom on the earth, and the glory of God is going to come back from the east, from the Mount of Olives, if you know the prophecies from the book of Zechariah, Jesus' feet are going to step on the Mount of Olives. It's going to split in two. He's going to then go through the eastern gate into the temple. In the same way that the Spirit of God left, He's going to come back that same way into the Holy of Holies. It's going to be an amazing day. And you're all going to be there to see it. You're all going to be there. If you're in Christ and Christ is in you, you're going to be with Him when He comes back. We're all going to come back with Him and we're going to see it. It's going to be an amazing day. And here the prophecy is now. Let me just take a brief second in the time we have left tonight, because I want to let you guys go. Um, I want to just clear up something briefly. We'll get into more detail when we get to chapter 44, which I think will be about 2018, 2019. But people try to use chapter 44 of Ezekiel, and they use what's going on in the temple in the area of Jerusalem now to say that the re if you know anything about the, the walls of Jerusalem, there's an eastern gate. 
and it's been sealed by the Ottoman Turks. It was sealed in the 1500s by the Ottoman Turks. And then to make sure that the Messiah doesn't, because they believe the Messiah is going to be a Jew, that this Jewish Messiah doesn't come through that gate because the prophecies say he's going to come through the gate. They put a Muslim cemetery outside that gate because in their minds, no self-respecting Jewish man is going to walk through a Muslim cemetery and defile himself. And so they sealed the gate and they put a Muslim cemetery outside. Now, a lot of prophecy people, if you go and look online and you do some study, they're going to say that that is the gate that Jesus is going to blow open when he comes back. A couple problems with that. It doesn't line up with the scriptures. Because as you're going to see, there's going to be a new temple built. What's going to be going on during the tribulation period, those of you who are in our study of Revelation? Aren't there going to be earthquakes all over the place that level everything? Jerusalem's going to be raised up, all this stuff. And we see that, here's the deal. They use chapter 44 as their proof that Jesus is going to come back through the gate. I'm going to read to you just a couple of verses here, verses 1 through 3 here in Ezekiel 44. Just touch on it. I'll teach in much more detail when we get to chapter 44. And then right after we've seen the glory of God come back into the temple in chapter 43, then he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, which is far faces east, and it was shut. This is the gate that Jesus had already come through. And the Lord said to me, this gate shall remain shut. It shall not be opened, and no one shall enter by it, for the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered by it. It's already come through. Therefore, it shall remain shut. Only the prince may sit in it, and we'll deal with who the prince is later in our study of Ezekiel, to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by the way of the vestibule of the gate and shall go out by the same way. In other words, the prophecy in Ezekiel 44 says that after Jesus comes and sets up his kingdom and comes through the eastern gate, it will be sealed after he comes through because he's gone through there and it will never be opened again because the Lord has already come through the gate. A lot of people try to take Ezekiel 44 and say the reason it's sealed is because the Lord's got to come through that gate. No. The prophecy said that it'll be sealed after he comes through the gate. You see it? Uh-oh. The question is, he says, is that Prince David? And I'm going to say, I said I'll teach on that later. <laughs> I think it is, but I'm going to deal with it in a lot more detail because there are some issues with that interpretation. So, but what I want you to understand for now is simply this. Back in the time of Ezekiel, when the Spirit of God took him in that vision, when he was in captivity in Babylon to Jerusalem, and he showed him all the wickedness going on in there that was going to drive him from the temple, we see the glory of God leave the cherubim above the ark to the threshold, go out the eastern gate to the Mount of Olives. That's the way he's going to come back. Now, interestingly enough, if you know anything about Jesus' triumphal entry, where did it begin? The Mount of Olives. He rode the donkey to the eastern gate, into the city, and he wept. He wept because he knew they weren't going to receive him. And he says, you won't see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's coming back. He's coming back. And the glory is going to be amazing. And we're going to be a part of it. So, folks, I'm going to just leave you with that. I hope you don't have to say it too much. But I also hope you learn how to say over the next year when stuff happens that you don't understand, but you still trust God, I 
hate buttermilk. <laughs> but the biscuits are coming. I love you. Thanks for coming. We'll see you next week.